Welcome to The West Steps, a podcast from the Colorado Children's Campaign that explores issues that impact Colorado kids and families. I'm your host, Beza Tedes. Welcome to The West Steps to another episode, and we continue to work remotely, and so this is also recorded remotely. We really do appreciate your patience in this time, and today's conversation is very exciting. It's one of those weedsy conversations that um, you often uh, get get yourself to to be excluded from, but I promise you, I have the state's expert to break it down for us um, and ask some questions uh, that I think we're all thinking about. Uh, I'm gonna let her introduce herself before we jump into it. Yes, it's gonna be one of those very weedsy but exciting conversations about school finance. I'm Leslie Caldwell. I'm the Vice President for Education Initiatives at the Children's Campaign. And, and we, we've talked on this pod on previous seasons about school finance and, and middle of East. So this will not be the first time you hear about this, but we're going to assume for our new listeners, we're going to start from some of the basic questions. So how has the school funding conversation changed because of COVID? So the way that we talk about school funding is still the same. Um, And so we say that we must do better to create an adequate and equitable system that works for all students. Mm. Um, Right now, we have a system where the level of funding that is available for our public schools depends um, pretty largely on local property wealth. And so that means that the educational opportunities that are available to our kids really differ based on where they live. Mm-hmm. Um, when the pandemic hit last year and funding cuts had to be made, we had to double our annual cut to education spending. So we were cutting, you know, $570 million from education each year. And now that cut is more than a billion dollars. We were able to protect funding for, um, critical programs like full day kindergarten and school lunches. But instead of using an equity lens to make targeted funding cuts that were required by the pandemic, we applied an equal cut to every district. And we know that when we do that, it it really only amplifies inequities in the system and and reduces the impact of the funds that we devote to our students living in poverty. Um, Now, we did receive pretty significant federal funding, Um, so our schools basically broke even in the last year, I would say, but, you know, in a time when the needs of students are only increasing, we're really concerned that 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 was not enough. And I think, you know, the first question that comes to mind is, why were we cutting, you know, over 500 million every year before the pandemic? So we have something here in Colorado called the budget stabilization factor. Um, And this has, it's, I'd say it's kind of a ninja move that the legislature created in um, back in 2010 in the last recession Mm. to balance our budget. Um, And so, you know, what we need to keep in mind is like our levels of K-12 spending have not um, recovered from the last recession at one point, we were cutting more than a billion dollars per year from education, um, and that amount, that funding cut amount, has gone down over time. But it's still, it was still really high even before the pandemic. And um, there are a lot of reasons for that. I would say, you know, I know we're going to talk 
a little bit more Beza about property tax. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one of the big sources of that problem has been the way that our local property tax revenue has eroded over time in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So this leads me to the, the next question then, um, why is the property tax um, decreasing that's helping us fund schools? So there's really two reasons for that. Um, one reason is associated with the Gallagher Amendment, which was part of our constitution. It was passed in 1982 by voters. And the long-term impact of that constitutional amendment is that um, the what's called the residential assessment rate for homes mm-hmm. really went down over time. Um, and so that was uh, something that eroded property tax revenue available for schools. A totally separate but very related problem has to do more with the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights or TABOR. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, one of the things that TABOR did was it imposed a cap on tax revenue. Um, so it would not allow school district revenues to grow at a faster rate than inflation plus enrollment growth. Um, mm-hmm. So pre-TABOR, we had, you know, pretty much all school districts had a, a uniform property tax rate that was around 40 mills. A mill levy is basically the tax rate. So all districts were at either 40 mills or they were fully funding their education program locally if they had a ton of property tax wealth. Um, but then after Tabor's passage, if local property tax revenues were going to exceed that Tabor cap because mm-hmm. of increases in property values happening locally, then the mill levy would be reduced to keep local revenues within that cap. Mm -hmm. So um, local districts between 1994, so post-Tabor passage and 2002, we had voters in 174 of 178 school districts that chose to permanently waive Tabor's revenue limitations. So they were Mm -hmm. essentially removing that cap on revenue Um, And and we called those deep brucing elections. And that was in reference to Tabor's author, Douglas Bruce. However, um, despite those successful deep brucing elections in the vast majority of school districts, our Department of Education acted as if those elections had not occurred when they were calculating um, the local share of of education funding. Mm. Um, And so they were requiring school districts to... um, they, they were reducing their mill levies so that revenue stayed under the revenue limits, um, even though they were not subject to those limits anymore. And so those mill levy reductions really compounded over time. So, you know, 1993, which was the year after Tabor took effect, school district mill levies were around 38 mills. Like I said, they were up around 40 mills. Um, and those reductions that were, were required by CDE after the successful debrucing elections dropped the average school district in the levy to about 19 mills today. Mm-hmm. And so that has meant um, a lot of lost revenue, like in the billions and billions of dollars for schools over time. Um, the general assembly in 2007, you know, I think they saw what was happening. They recognized that those ongoing reductions were not sustainable and that they were um, really inequitable in how they were applied And so they froze the mill levies in place. Um, And Mm -hmm. so that kind of locked the patchwork of property tax rates in place ever since. 
Um, and so uh, I think, you know, one of the things we could talk about is there's a bill this session that we're working on that would um, sort of put a question about this problem to the Colorado Supreme Court. Um, so it seems like there are these large structural uh, factors that are compounding why we are at a point where we are about to, you know, we cut a billion dollars from our um, school funding. So why is now the time then to talk about um, how we structured funding formula um, and property tax? Why is now the right time? Yeah. So maybe let's start with our property tax, because this is really the foundation of inequity in our system. Mm -hmm. Um, So property tax is our first source of revenue for public education. And overall, it's a highly regressive system, meaning that our most property and our our most income poor districts pay the highest base property tax rates. And then conversely, many of our wealthiest communities in Colorado pay the lowest based property tax rate. So you're saying Aspen is paying less than everybody else. That's what I heard. In terms of a tax rate, Aspen is a super easy example and not to pick on them because it's not (laughs) their fault, but Aspen pays a tax rate that is six times lower than some of our poorest communities in the state. So, you know, this, I think what's the most egregious about this is that it's not even a system that anyone designed on purpose but it is absolutely a system that systematically disadvantages certain kids in our state. And so, um, you know, I I talked a little bit about Tabor and this uh, system where we have wildly different tax rates, depending on what school district you live in, it's really an unintended consequence of how Tabor was implemented over time. What we've been saying for years is that if we don't change it, it becomes an intended consequence. Like if we don't do something, then it, it will be us like sort of shrugging our, our shoulders at um, these inequities that are systemic and structural. So, you know, that's the property tax side. And then um, separate from how we generate our revenue through property tax, we could also talk about how we allocate those dollars through our school finance formula. Mm-hmm. So we know that, you know, funding is necessary, but it's not sufficient for providing high quality educational opportunities for all kids. What matters even more is how we spend money. So for example, we have ample evidence at this point of the clear link between targeted investments that are based on student needs. Mm-hmm. And you know, then we see improved outcomes when we actually, when we actually target those investments to those students. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the way that Colorado allocates our dollars for education is more than a quarter century old at this point. And we disproportionately send funding to our most affluent communities at the expense of communities who are serving high percentages of low-income students and families. Um, And that is not reflective of what research and best practice say are the best ways to invest in public education. So like just as one example, we send about a billion dollars to districts through something called the cost of living adjustment. Um, and that funding goes to communities where it's expensive to live. And there are some good reasons for that, but it also drives real inequities in the formula because those dollars overwhelmingly go to, if you think about it, like wealthy districts where yeah. it's the, the Um, cost of living is high. And so we spend three times more on that cost of living adjustment than we do on our um, 
our at-risk factor. Mm-hmm. And the at-risk factor is what accounts for our students living in poverty in the state. So all of the research says that if anything, those amounts should actually be reversed. Like mm-hmm. how we're actually sending dollars um, to districts and schools. Uh, it, if anything, it should be the other way around. Mm-hmm. So how we collect money is fundamentally inequitable, but also how we spend money is inequitably, uh, equally un- uh, inequitable. Is that, is, that, is that the right way to understand this? Yep, that is, yep. Problems on both sides. Problems on both sides. (laughs) Yes. It won't be a school finance conversation if we didn't highlight the problems on both sides. Um, So, you know, you talked a little bit about why, uh, how we think about school finance is changing, especially right now after um, the biggest cut that we've seen so far in the last couple of years. So what is happening at the state legislature to be able to solve for this problem? Okay, so this session, we are we are seeing progress on a bill that could help address our revenue or the property tax inequity problem side of the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is House Bill 1164, which directs the Department of Education to implement a correction plan to um, over time gradually increase districts mill levies. Um, And again, like mill levy is just a fancy term for property tax rates. So in districts that are below a certain level, um, their mill levies would increase gradually over time. Um, So we're talking about a tax increase here. And, you know, as we've already discussed, like Tabor requires that any tax increase be approved by voters. The case that we're trying to make with House Bill 1164 is that voters have actually already approved higher mill levies in the 1990s and early 2000s, again, through those um, successful debrucing elections, Mm -hmm. but that those elections were not honored by CDE um, because CDE then continued to lower the tax rates. Yeah. Um, So because, you know, House Bill 1164 brings this fundamental constitutional question into play about Tabor and voter approval, the bill forms the basis of what is called an interrogatory that was just sent to the Colorado Supreme Court. Um, And, you know, so we're asking them to assess the constitutionality of those proposed mill levy corrections. Okay, so just so I understand this clearly, um, the debrucing effects were not honored by the Department of Education, which meant that the tax values were not assessed at the right levels. And now you're asking CD to honor those um, debrucing efforts. But in order to do that, you first have to go to the Supreme Court. Why is that? So, you know, I uh, I think the reason that we want the Supreme Court to weigh in here is because it really brings into question, I mean, there's a, there's a fundamental Tabor question here, which is um, if we want to fix this structural problem in our K-12 revenue system, do individual districts have to go to their voters again to increase their total program mill levy for, for K-12 funding over time? Or can those debrucing elections count as um, the voter approval that was needed to stay at a higher mill levy? Um, and that's going to make a really big difference because uh, it's hard for districts to host local elections. They do it all the time for things like mill levy overrides and bond elections to raise money for schools. 
Um, but it's it's expensive to run those elections. It's you know it, it requires a lot of um, work and bandwidth to mm-hmm. run elections, and so um, we'd love to avoid having to do that again because really the argument here is like those elections already happened and voter intent was not honored by the Department yeah. of Education. And, and do we have any idea why this those elections were not honored? So um, there was a, it was kind of a unilateral decision that was made by the the commissioner of education. Um, and I, I don't even, I think his name was commissioner Mahoney maybe, um, but he sort of, you know, his department under his leadership, they just like kind of made an executive decision that said that even though those elections had passed where the Tabor mm-hmm. cap um, had been removed, their interpretation was that um, the Tabor cap still existed for purposes of property tax. Mm. And so, um, and we actually have, there was a Supreme court case in 2009 where they um, sort of peripherally weighed in on this. And the Supreme court in their ruling said, like, we agree that this was a mistake um, that mill levies should not have gone down over time at the time they did not, uh, recommend a remedy. And so that is, you know, sort of, we're now how many years later, almost mm-hmm. a dozen years later. Um, and that is what House Bill 1164 is trying to do is, is institute a solution or a remedy. So if the Supreme Court says, yes, this is right, this uh, um, local election should be honored, what would happen then? Yep. So first, the Supreme Court has to agree to take up the case. And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the first hurdle. And hopefully we'll know more about that in the next couple of weeks. But if they do decide to take it up and they agree that mill levies were reduced in error and the legislature and CDE should correct this mistake through Mm -hmm. what is laid out in House Bill 1164, the impacts on students and schools would be huge. So for one, it will mean new revenue for all schools and districts. Um, and that revenue will be distributed more equitably because, um, you know, it will be going to all districts instead of kind of subsidizing our districts that have low property tax rates, um, mm-hmm. which, we're, which we're doing right now. And so the projection for new revenue in the first year is about $92 million. Um, and that amount increases to almost $300 million per year over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, like that's real money that that has the potential to impact kids' educational opportunities um, for, you know, for property owners. So I think like really positive potential benefits for um, kids in our K-12 system um, for property owners in many districts, they will need to contribute more to support public education. But those increases will be phased in over many years and the impact will be about seven dollars and 15 cents per $100,000 of home value. So, um, you know, the bill would also result in better taxpayer equity across the state. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, like the tax that you pay to support public education and the funding available to support students won't be as dependent on where you live. Yeah, so we can, we we all, each of us throughout the state contribute in equitable forms to fund schools which, um, you know, the dream. Um, so I think, you know, these, these conversations are often, um, 
we talk about them in structural levels because they are structural problems. But what are some of the real life impacts that we've seen? Because we have the way we collect money is not equitable, but also the way how we spend money is not equitable. And we are in this process of trying to fix solutions. But what are some of the real life um, impacts that we've seen from how we invest in per students, per classroom, teacher? What are some of the things that we've seen so far? Yeah, I mean, I think one um, consequence of our state funding system that um, has gotten a lot worse over time is that we have districts, you know, in the absence of a statewide funding solution. um, And, you know, in this sort of every year we're seeing cuts in the hundreds of millions of dollars to schools, Mm -hmm. districts have have had to take it upon themselves to raise revenue for their students. And so, we have the levy overrides, which is where districts can go to their local voters and ask for more revenue, again, through property tax. Mm-hmm. Um, since the last recession, that the amount statewide that is raised through mill levy overrides has more than doubled. So it's about $1.4 billion now total that local districts are able to raise for their students. The problem with that is that not all students benefit from that funding. So we have 52 school districts where um, they have zero mill levy override dollars to offset state funding cuts. And then we've got plenty of districts where, um, you know, they've got two, three, four thousand dollars per student to offset state funding cuts. Oh. That, um, you know, that is uh, creates real differences in the educational experience for students. Um, and again, it's completely based on where do you live? What is your amount of local property wealth? How willing are your voters to support um, more funding for schools? And that is, you know, the state is at a real loss to be able to solve for that. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that that we need is, is sort of more of that local property tax revenue um, being felt more equitably across across districts by students. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, it's important to point out at this point that like uh, Colorado um, voters actually want to see an equitable school finance formula. That mm-hmm. This is not a... Um, it's not a sentiment that's understood by some or, you know, polling shows that Coloradans want to rethink how we fund schools and they want equitable contributions from uh, property tax as well. So um, I think the last question I have is, so, you know, this is a very weedsy conversation. Education is one of those, um, you know, resources that we know has significant impact on kids lives through way after they you know they are no longer in school and for those people who want to educate themselves on the issue and for people who want to know what's happening with this case in the supreme court um how can they plug in um yeah so we you know uh, we definitely are trying to keep everyone updated on this through capital updates in our weekly kids flash newsletter um, and I think the, in terms of like how people can plug in, um, these topics are all really complex, but you don't need a, you don't, you don't need to understand the weeds of um, our formula or the way that property tax works. I think 
you know, what legislators really need is to understand the reality of what funding for schools and students looks like on the ground. And so I always think that the most powerful thing people can do is um, reach out to their elected officials and share their experience or their child's experience and what they would like to see in schools. Um, it doesn't hurt to let your legislator know that you're aware that there are problems with how we raise revenue and with how we spend it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that students deserve a high quality education and access to resources no matter where they live. Um, you know, the children's campaign, we can share the data, but lived experience of constituents is always more compelling to policymakers. Mm-hmm. So that would be my, my top yeah. suggestion. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for making the time for us. Um, this will not be the last time we talk about school finance on this podcast, but I really appreciate you breaking down something that is very complex um, and making it uh, easy to understand. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Baze. The West Steps is a production of the Colorado Children's Campaign. If you want to support our work, go to coloradokids.org. Fun fact, you can also find out Erica's pet peeves on her profile page on our website. Please don't do that.